I hate to fade that down. You just heard part of an arietta called Du Tendre Amant of Tender Love from the opera L'Amant Anonyme, opera written in 1780 by Joseph Boulogne, better known as Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Afro-French composer. And you just heard that excerpt from its world premiere recording on CD Records featuring, in that particular case, soprano Nicole Cabell and the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, conducted by Craig Trumpeter, a recording featuring the Haymarket Opera Company. It's our February 2023 new release on Sadie Records, this world premiere recording. Those of you who've listened to these podcasts before know, every time we have a new album on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. This is episode 58. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of Sadie Records. And I am delighted that my guests on this podcast are the people you just heard, both in front of and behind the orchestra, as it were. Specifically, soprano Nicole Cabell and music director Craig Trumpeter. Hi, guys. Hi. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Because we have so much to cover, I'm going to keep the introductions fairly short. Nicole Cabell is probably known to every opera goer in the country. She made a splash by winning the world's most famous vocal competition, the BBC Singer of the World in Cardiff in 2005. She is a graduate of the Ryan Opera Center at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Nicole has sang major roles at all the major opera companies in the world, whether it's Mimi in La Boheme, Violetta in La Traviata, The Countess in The Marriage of Figaro, Paris Opera, San Francisco Opera, Metropolitan Metropolitan Opera, a regular at Lyric Opera of Chicago, of course, the hometown company. Her solo debut album on DECA in 2007, titled simply Soprano, won all kinds of awards. And Nicole is currently based as a professor of voice at the Eastman School of Music. Craig Trumpeter is the founder and artistic director of the Haymarket Opera Company. He's also a solo cellist and violist de gamba who's performed with all of Chicago's major symphonic and period instrument ensembles, including as a soloist. And his teaching bases are at both the University of Chicago and Northwestern University. Few words about the Haymarket Opera Company, which is represented on this recording. Haymarket Opera Company inspires a culturally vibrant community and diversifies the artistic landscape of Chicago and the Midwest through the presentation of historically informed opera and oratorio from the Age of Enlightenment. For over 10 years, Haymarket has enriched the Chicago and Midwest musical community with critically acclaimed performances of 17th and 18th century operas and oratorios using period instruments in historically informed staging conventions and has produced more than 20 operatic productions plus numerous concert performances. This recording is based on a production that Haymarket staged in June of 2022, and we had recording sessions immediately following the run of the production, and we'll talk about that transition later in the podcast. Right now, I should probably focus on the composer, because he is such a fascinating figure, and it's hard to do him, his life, and his music justice in just a couple minutes, but here's the short version, or the shortest version I could do. (laughs) Joseph Boulogne was born on Christmas Day in 1745 in Guadeloupe. He was the son of a French nobleman and an enslaved African on the island. The nobleman brought his son, who he accepted into the family, back to France at age seven. It seems his education started around age 13, both in fencing and in music. As far as fencing goes, he quickly overtook his fencing masters to become the most celebrated swordsman in all of France. 
and a favorite at the court, including of the queen, Marie Antoinette. By age 18, his virtuosity on the violin was such that concertos were being written for him. By his mid-20s, he was a leading conductor and began composing. For example, he was one of the first French composers of string quartets. In 1775, he actually introduced the form of the symphonie concertante, a type of concerto for multiple instruments, and in St. George's case, two violins was his preference. And it was actually his symphonies concertante that inspired Mozart to write a double concerto, the symphony concertante that we all know for violin and viola. You'll see references to Boulogne sometimes as Le Mozart Noir, the Black Mozart. But in fact, being the older composer by 11 years, the influence usually went in the other direction, and that symphony concertante is a perfect example of that. He wrote many violin concertos, including ones concurrently with Mozart's five, and his are actually far more virtuosic, as he was much more accomplished on the instrument than Mozart. As a conductor, he commissioned and premiered Haydn's six Paris symphonies. So without Saint-Georges, we don't have some of Haydn's best symphonies. He was actually supposed to become director of the Paris Opera, but one of the many cases where racism reared its ugly head in his career, the ladies of the company, or at least three of them, objected to working under, quote, a mulatto, and he had to withdraw his candidacy, and they had to leave the position vacant for about a decade and a half because there was nobody else at his level who could fill it. In other exploits, he led the first all-black regiment in Europe, rising to the rank of colonel in 1792, fighting on the side of the Republic in the French Revolution. Later in his musical career, after writing numerous concertos, string quartets, etc., his compositions number over 200, he turned almost exclusively to opera and song and wrote six operas that we know of, only one of which has survived, and that, of course, is the one we got to record here. I guess I can sum it up best with uh, President John Adams' remark, having met the Chevalier, who called him the most accomplished man in Europe. So that gives you some idea. And you may be wondering why somebody who was so famous in his day has for a long time been in obscurity, although his reputation is being resurrected now. We'll talk about that more later in the podcast, but spoiler alert, it's racism. And speaking of his renaissance, there is actually a biopic that's been making the circuit of the film festivals that will be released to the public in April called simply Chevalier. You may want to watch for that. And the group Classical Kids, which is famous for shows such as Beethoven Lives Upstairs and Mr. Bach Comes to Call, their next show will be Saint-Georges Sword and Bow. It will premiere here in Chicago in June, and then next season will be performed with organizations such as the San Francisco Symphony and the Toronto Symphony. This is a composer who is finally getting his due. One thing I want to ask both of you is about your knowledge of Joseph Ballone before this project began and what you have learned since. I certainly knew of him tangentially before delving into this project. I knew of his quartets. There's an old recording by the Juilliard of some of them. He wasn't a total surprise to me, but I have never actually performed any of his music myself until this project. It's been a rewarding opportunity to learn about this man and his compositional style. I feel sad that this is the only opera that we have of his. I really enjoyed it, and I think that the audience, the music is great. Maybe something will surface. That's my hope.
Nicole? I agree with Craig that I just wish there was more, especially for the voice, because it's very interesting work. I knew of this composer, but I couldn't identify the works, and I certainly couldn't sing or recommend to my students any of the excerpts because it just simply wasn't done enough and it wasn't very available. I'm lucky in a way because just prior to joining Haymarket for this production, we mounted this opera at the Eastman School of Music. One of my students was singing my role of Leontine, so we were able to learn it together and discover Joseph Ballon's music together with the rest of the student body at Eastman. So that was an exciting introduction before joining Haymarket. Having performed this now, granted it's not a huge body of work that you've performed, but are there general characteristics of his music that you recognize? Anything that you would say is recognizably Bolognian or Saint-Georgian? He was certainly writing in a common practice language, using the harmonies and the phrasing that was standard at the time, but he definitely had his own voice within that language. One of the great parts of his music that I really enjoy, and I think people will also enjoy listening, is the melodies. He was a great melodist. Each melody has a very clear profile. And what I've been noticing as I return to the score is that the melodies have quite a wide range within them. Maybe, Nicole, you felt that too as a singer, that he loves to go from something low to something really high and then come back down or vice versa, that there's always this clear profile to the melodies. The other Bolognian thing that I find is that his accompaniments are pretty distinct, often clashing with the harmony. There's usually what people might think of as a wrong note somewhere in the motor bits. I think that's Bolognian. There's definitely a complexity to Bologna's music that makes him unique. I would agree with Craig that the vocal line is challenging and it's unpredictable. You look at it and you go, okay, this is maybe something that a young singer can perform. And then the more you dig into the score, you realize they have to know their voice. One has to understand vocal technique and vocal production in order to pull off these lines. And particularly the tessitura in some of these pieces. For all of the three main roles in this uh, opera, we were all challenged beyond our comfort level, but we can say we grew from it. That is a somewhat unique compositional style compared to, say, Mozart or Haydn. Yeah, I was just going to ask about comparing the two giants of the day. Mark Legg, in the booklet for this recording, who incidentally is professor of musicology and associate dean at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and he is the chief advisor to the Rachel Barden Pine Foundation's Music by Black Composers project. Mark Legg points out something that Saint-Georges has in common with Mozart, actually, and not so much with Haydn, in that uh, he and Mozart shared a fondness for musical phrases of unexpected, odd-numbered lengths. Haydn usually stuck to the four-bar phrase, but Mozart and Saint-Georges did not. Yeah, he sets up the usual expectation. There'll be a lot of balanced phrases, and then he'll throw something in that's, that's off-balance to bring it into prominence. We actually, on Sadie, 25 years ago, recorded one of his violin concertos with Rachel Barden Pine. And one of the things that you notice in that concerto, and you were talking about the melodies, is unlike Haydn and Mozart, who would take one thing and then develop it, Saint-Georges would just as often just come up with a new melody and put it on top of the, the right. previous melody. Yeah, it's so chock full of melodies. I mean, it, you're right, it's one beautiful melody, and then he might return to part of it, and then... He'll go off in, in another beautiful direction, and 
I find it enticing and wonderful. I don't know what it's like as a singer <laughs> to memorize it all, for instance. In some ways, it makes it easier to memorize because you have very distinct differences in the arias where you can think, well, this is so obviously a change of mood or a change of color that you don't have to search for the subtlety. In a good way, there's some obvious characteristics to the music. I'm thinking of my first aria, Son Amour, Sacoustance, Extreme. It starts off with this minor key dramatic aria, and then this whole B section it completely enters another world. And then back at the A section, more distinct than, say, even a Handel aria in places. The difference in the music is more jarring in that way, but also very interesting because of it. I love that aria. The beginning of it reminds me of the Queen of the Night. You know, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Well, yeah. And we'll be hearing some of that later in the podcast. I remember it, during the sessions, overhearing some of the orchestral musicians talking about the accompaniments. They were noticing in some of the dance music, he would carry the same bass line over different dances, but with completely different melodies on top, mm -hmm. and perhaps some more consonant with that bass line than others. And there's one place where he combines two movements into one. Huh. He does them separately, and then he puts them together, which is super cool. Most of the composers we know from this era, Haydn and Mozart, and of course, early Beethoven and Schubert, all come from the Austro-German school, even the composers who came from Bohemia were part of that school. Is there a distinctly French classical style that Saint-Georges represents? I think the main thing about French opera is that it's pretty dance-heavy, mm -hmm. usually. So there's always dance. The story is that even when Verdi brought Otello to Paris, he had to write a ballet <laughs> for Otello. So it was de rigueur, as they say, to dance into the opera. And there's certainly a lot of it in this piece. You should get to some of the music, and that's a perfect entree for it, because even the overture is very dance-like. Yeah. One of the things that's Bolognian <laughs> is his music really suggests movement to me. Perhaps it was his experience as an athlete, as master swordsman and, and dancer. Probably he just conceived of the world in terms of movements. You feel like you're in space, at least, not outer space, but you're moving in space. That's how I feel when I listen to it. So the beginning of the overture, to me, suggests movement through the ocean. I just imagine him on his way to France from Guadeloupe. And then these incredibly profiled melodies, and there's a lot of rhythmic energy in it, too. His dancing is another reason he was a favorite at the court, apparently. Mm. Now, even though it's a French opera, it's actually an Italian overture, right? Oh, I suppose. It's in three parts, right. and each part has parts within it. Yeah, it starts off in D major, and then it goes to this slower bit in D minor, and then it ends with this presto back in D major with a, a different meter, and it works. Well, the three-part style, I believe, is usually thought of as an Italian, an Italianate style. And you mentioned that presto, which I think is the most dance-like part of all, and I thought that's what we would play. Mm, great. And before we do, I just want to mention, you'll be hearing this on period instruments, and we'll talk about what that means on the other side. But as you listen, this will not sound like the Chicago Symphony playing this music. Period instruments have a very distinct sound of their own. So listen for that. Listen to how the strings and winds sound different from what you might expect if you're not used to period instruments especially. And then we'll talk about how those sounds are produced afterwards. So here is the third part of the overture to L'Amant Anonyme, 1780 opera by Joseph Blone, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, in its world premiere recording on CD Records. This is the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, conducted by Craig Trumpeter. Thank you. 
You just heard part of the overture. It's a three-part overture, and you heard the third part, the presto, from the overture to L'Amont Anonyme, opera written in France by Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Afro-French composer, written in 1780. This is its world premiere recording by the Haymarket Opera Company, and so you heard the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, Chicago's premier period instrument ensemble, conducted by Craig Trumpeter, one of my guests on this podcast, along with Nicole Cabell, who performs the leading role, and we'll be hearing a lot of her music coming up. But in the meantime, I mentioned before playing it that this is period instruments. Uh, Craig, can you tell people exactly what that means? In this case, we're talking about late 18th century instruments. So if anyone listening has perfect pitch, they might have thought, oh, wow, they're really flat, right? (laughs) There wasn't a standard pitch like we think of it nowadays. When you go to a piano, it's going to match any other piano that you play. One might be a little bit out of tune, but it's basically the same pitch standard. Really, even into the 19th century, it didn't really exist. What we have come to is a compromise that we know that pitch basically has gone up over the centuries. And probably the pitch of Mozart and Bologna's time was maybe just a little bit flatter. So instruments, of course, have to be constructed and standardized so that we can all play with each other in modern times. 
but it was a quite a complex subject back in the day. So that's the first thing, that it, it's pretty distinct in that way, that everything is at a lower pitch. And which, it was 8430 instead well, of 8440? our tuning was 430. Yeah. Yeah. But again, even within the same city, you could have totally different pitch standards. And I don't know how they did it. The wind players must have <laughs> had a bunch of different instruments. It's easy enough for the string players and the keyboard to retune, but not so just for the wind instrument. So the string players are all playing on gut strings. Most of them are unwound gut, so it's sheep intestine, if you want to think about that, that is stretched and twisted and cured. It's a pretty interesting process. When you play on one of those versus a modern steel string, you get a lot of background noise or gritty sound that's mixed in. It's a visceral sound that's not as clean as a modern string player would be, and I personally am a big fan of it as a cellist. And then some of the strings are wound with a small filament of silver that gives them more mass and weight for the lower notes. And then the bows that the string players used are what we now call transitional bows. And again, bows were not standardized. So the modern bow that most people use was something that actually developed in the 19th century. So the modern bow is actually a 19th century bow. And then there was something more like a Baroque bow, which was quite light and had a different, very distinct shape. It, it had a taper at the tip. And then in between those two periods was what we now call a transitional bow. It was kind of a cross between the two. So there was a hatchet head, but it was lighter and it wasn't designed so much to sustain sound as the modern bow is. So all the players in our orchestra are using those. And then the winds are using also what we now call transitional instruments. And basically the bores of the woodwind instruments were thinner and they added keys so that they could play chromatic notes more in tune, especially like with the bassoon, gave the bassoon the ability to play solo lines. And there's some wonderful featured bassoon moments in La Main Anonyme, which are very distinctive. The horns are particularly unusual yeah. compared to ours, right? We also used natural horns, which I'm not a horn player, so I hope I don't say anything wrong about this, but the natural horn, all of the notes that they make are created with their embouchure, the way they use their lips, and they can maybe do some small adjustments with their hands inside the instruments, but they don't have keys. So it's quite a challenge to play these instruments. In fact, all of these instruments have serious quirks <laughs> that make it quite difficult to play them, but we persist because we love them. I fell in love with period instruments when I was quite young, and I feel much more at home playing on an instrument. While it's more difficult, I speak through it better. And it really is a wonderful sound, and I hope you heard that in the overture, and I think you'll hear it also in the first aria, which we're going to come to in just a moment. Before we get there, since we're talking about historically informed performance, what research, if any, were you able to do in terms of performance practice for this composer? I don't know that there's anything specific to Bologna himself. First of all, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a musicologist. There are plenty of them who have done a lot of really great work. Performing musicians really depend on the work of these great scholars who look at every little detail. There is so much detail in what they do. I read a lot of sources about period performance of this time. I don't often play myself music this late. I'm usually doing earlier stuff. As a cellist yeah, viola da gamba. Viola gamba. The viola da gamba, for instance, had fallen out of favor by this time for several decades. I'm a big lover of opera and spend a lot of my waking hours listening to Mozart. I had to do quite a lot of research for the performance practice aspects of this piece. We made our own edition 
for this production and recording using the only surviving source of this piece, which is this rather difficult to read and chock full of errors <laughs> score from the National Library in, in France. That was the only resource that we had. And so a man named Greg Sewell went through this score painstakingly. And first he transcribed the whole thing as is. And then we realized, okay, there's lots of mistakes and we have to fix them. Together we did that and we kept finding them actually as the orchestra arrived. So we had to, as it was realized on its feet, we found more errors. So it was a long process, but really worth it. We also had to make a translation of the piece. And one of our board members is fluent in French. Her name is Mary Mackay. And her husband, Edward Wheatley, worked together on the translation. And it turned out beautifully. And I should mention that the recording booklet will include the full libretto in French and translation. And of course, that will be available through the Sadie Records website as well. And how about you, Nicole? Were you able to find stuff specific to Saint-Georges? Not particularly, but I, again, just because I have made quite a career of singing Mozart, Mm -hmm. stylistically, a lot of it was quite similar. And a lot of the choices that I would make, for instance, how I would approach a trill or portamenti, I would use the same stylistic approach in Ballon's music. Actually, one thing I noticed as I was editing this opera, I kept having the same thought over and over again. That sounds a lot like something Mozart wrote several years later, Mm. because one has to keep in mind, this is 1780. This is before any of Mozart's major operas, before even Idomeneo. It's actually Saint-Georges presaging Mozart, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Before we start going into the sung bits, let's talk a little bit about the stage production and how you move from that to the recording sessions. How does the approach differ musically? Well, opera is somewhat chaotic in performance. (laughs) There's so many elements beyond the music, the costuming and the sets and all that stuff that is very complicated. And we have a virtuoso team that handles all of that. But when we get into the recording sessions, of course, we can just focus on the music. And having had all those live performances and those many weeks of putting it on its feet in a dramatic way, that that really helped us. I felt comfortable with the music and that I had this visceral memory of the actual production. The nice thing about recording is that you can be much more subtle in front of a microphone than you can in a large theater where you need to make sure everybody hears. (laughs) And especially when the orchestra's in the pit, they have to play in a way that will get out of the pit and to the stage and to the audience. So we can't explore the softer dynamics as much as we can in a recording, which is a luxury. We should note that this was done at the Jarvis Opera House at DePaul University here in Chicago. And for the recording sessions, we moved the orchestra up to the stage at the same level to the singers, Mm -hmm. and that allowed you that flexibility. That was nice, too, that we could be eye to eye. (laughs) And Nicole, how about for you, moving from the production to the recording? I think I can speak for many singers when I say that recording sessions can be challenging because you have limited mobility. And usually when you're staged, especially if you've just come from performing in the production, you're used to moving around the stage, moving your body, moving your head left, right, up, down. But you have to face a microphone and the box that you're in is rather small. So that presents challenges in terms of vocal production and freedom of sound. However, Craig's correct that you have this intimacy There's a freedom in that, that you can play with colors and dynamics. 
and language in a way that might be more subtle and interesting and layered, as opposed to, again, trying to project over an orchestra, even if it's in a small house, and trying to reach an audience that's in front of you, as opposed to having a conversation style experience with the microphone. Great. Let's move on to the body of the opera itself. Reading from Mark Legg's notes, I will just give a brief summary of how it begins. The opera is set in the rural French countryside to which the young, noble-born widow Leontine has retreated following the death of her unfaithful husband. The plot involves an improbable love triangle between just two characters, Leontine and Valcourt. It's a triangle because Valcour is concerned that Leontine cannot love again after her terrible experience with her dead husband and feels that she has sworn off love. So he woos her in secret as L'Anonyme, the anonymous one, and later in the opera finds himself in competition with himself. <laughs> so that's how you have a love triangle with only two people in it. Before we go on to the music, I'll give a quick rundown of the cast. Nicole Cabell is in the major role in the opera, Leontine, just mentioned, as Valcour, the anonymous one, Jeffrey Agpalo, as his counselor, Ophémont David Govertson. There's a second pair of lovers, actually, in this opera, and those are Jeanette and Colin, sung respectively by Erica Schuller and Michael St. Peter. And then there's finally the character of Dorothée, who's the best friend character to Leontine, it's mostly a spoken role. In fact, it was actually performed by the woman who commissioned Saint-Georges to write the opera in the very first production. But in this case, Dorothée also, in our production, sings in all the ensembles. And she is performed by Nathalie Collat, who also acted as diction coach, because she's French, for the production and recording sessions. So big thanks to Nathalie for that. I should also mention that this opera recording is generously funded from a number of sources, in particular, Greg O'Leary and Pat Kenny, who are also the sponsors of Haymarket Opera's production of La Mont Anonyme. So they sponsored both the staged production and the recording, and they are the lead sponsors for both. We also had support from Jerry and Pat Fuller, and I should know Jerry is actually the string bass player in the orchestra. And this is also the first recording to be funded in part by the recently created Ruth Bader Ginsburg Fund for Vocal Recordings at Sadie Records. This is something that we launched at our annual gala in September 2022. In fact, the gala this year happened to fall on September 18th, which is the second anniversary of her, and I should say my mother's, passing. And we felt that the best way to honor her was by creating this fund for the music that she loved most. She was a tremendous devotee of opera and vocal music generally, and one thing this fund does is it commits Sadie Records to releasing at least one vocal album every year at a time when such recording is really diminishing industry-wide. And we're recording this podcast in November of 2022, and for those who are members of the Recording Academy, we recently voted on the nominations, and I'm proud to say that Sadie got four this year. I was very surprised to see how many fewer entries there were in the opera and vocal solo category than in previous years. So for various reasons, the industry is moving away from this, but we are making through this fund a commitment that Sadie will continue to make, if anything, more vocal recordings. And I know my mother as a huge fan of Mozart and classical period opera would be 
really overjoyed to think that this was the first production that this fund supported. The foundation is vitally important for singers to have as many opportunities as possible. I was able to meet Justice Ginsburg several times in the opera and what an incredible honor this was. And to know that her spirit is going to be with these recordings, that adds more power, more significance, and more beauty to this foundation in general. So I know I speak for my singing colleagues to say that we're incredibly grateful for this being a new opportunity for us. And like you said, Jim, in a world where these vocal recordings are becoming less and less popular and less funded, this is extremely important for us. It keeps our art alive. And for everybody else, when I say I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be on this first recording as part of the foundation. Well said. I'll note that the opera actually begins with two numbers for the tenor, Valcour. The first establishes his noble character and his longing for Leontine, but his inability to woo her directly. The second is a duet with his counselor, Ophemon. That one really shows off some of that tessitura that Nicole was talking about. Actually, they're parts that remind me of Mozart's writing for Tamino and the Magic Flute 11 years later. Mm -hmm. But in any case, we're going to focus on your numbers, of course, Nicole, and it starts with the piece that you mentioned earlier, the Ariette uh, Son Amour Sa Constance Extreme. Why don't you explain what that's about? This is the introduction of Leontine singing, and in this little Arietta, she goes into a little detail as to why she doesn't want to fall in love again. She has sworn off falling in love, because again, as we mentioned, her last experience was not a positive one. And this B section that I was discussing earlier, this major key, the sun has come out, things have changed in her character and her vocal production, because she's now speaking about the anonymous lover and all these wonderful little gifts and gestures and parties that he's had for her. Well, there might be some hope here for her to start changing her feelings, but of course then we return to the A section and she continues to swear off love. <laughs> so it's a little recap of her state of mind as of late, maybe for the last several years of her life. And the outer sections of this ariette are in C minor, and I think that's a particularly good key for expressing that kind of angst. You talked about that gritty sound of the period instruments. I think you really feel that mm. in the introduction to this ariette. The introduction is barely even an introduction because you just explode into... <laughs> that's what it reminds me about the Queen of the Night aria. Uh, Nicole, how does Salone establish Leontine's character with this initial ariette, and are there aspects that run through all of her solos? As I was mentioning about the first aria, we get her decision to reject love in the future and her doubt as to whether or not she really wants to go through with that promise to herself. And this theme definitely crops up through the entirety of the opera. In a way, it's a love triangle. It's a friend love triangle, too, because she starts to have feelings for this anonymous lover, for Valcourt as well. And this is confusing to her. She wants to remain steadfast, but she's continually challenged by the positive pressure that this friend and this lover continues to put on her, as well as her decision to swear off love. Again, it crops up in several of her other arias. Du Tendre Amour has this same exercise in 
decision making. <laughs> and her first aria is in the second act as well. So yes, this is thematically very similar. You really get a sense of her character from the music itself, which of course is the goal, I would say, of any good opera composer but something that was developed greatly in the classical period. And again, we always think of Mozart as the one who did that developing, but here's Saint-Georges in 1780, which amazes me. When you experience the entire piece with the dialogue, it seems to me that Leontine is genteel and reserved in the dialogue often, but then her musical moments reveal this intense, passionate person fills out her character quite a lot. I don't know if you feel that way, Nicole, that the music gives her a depth that maybe only the dialogue wouldn't. A hundred percent in the first act. In the second act, she finally gets frustrated with Ophémont <laughs> at a particular moment and goes into a tirade over and over. It is the three mini monologues, one after another. And I do feel like she's held back until that moment. We're talking about the dialogue here. And then she lets loose a tirade of frustration, embarrassment, anger, passion, all these emotions that's been bubbling up. But you're right, you do hear that in the music much more transparently than you do in the dialogue, especially in the first part of the opera. All right, well, let's hear that then. So this is Leontine expressing mostly her disdain for love from the opera L'Amant Anonyme by Chevalier de Saint-Georges, also known as Joseph Boulogne, from the world premiere recording on CD Records. And we will hear soprano Nicole Cabell with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, conducted by Craig Trumpeter.
You just heard an ariette titled Son Amour, Sa Constance Extreme, sung by Nicole Cabell, soprano with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, conducted by Craig Trumpeter, from the recording by the Haymarket Opera Company on CD Records, L'Amont Anonyme, opera written in 1780 by Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. This is its world premiere recording. And if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, and you'll be hearing a lot more, just want to let you know that the album releases officially on February 10th, 2023. And that means on that date, uh, you'll find it available on streaming sites such as Apple Music and Spotify and Tidal and all the rest. And that also means if you pre-order it from Amazon.com, for example, it'll ship on that day. Also, if you pre-order it from the Sadie website, which is C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. And any way you like to get your music, I hope you'll want to check out this opera. That was the main character, Leontine's first big number, her ariette. And we'll be hearing more from her throughout. And I should also mention you'll be hearing lots of dialogue from her throughout as well, because this piece is done in the style of the opera comique in France, which does not mean comic opera, but it does mean opera with dialogue. The most obvious example of this is the original version of Bizet's Carmen, which thankfully I think is the version that more companies are doing today than the later version with the somewhat questionable recitative, I would say. Since the obvious examples of opera with dialogue, in addition to Bizet's Carmen, are the Mozart Singspiel operas in what was his language, German. Again, the most obvious examples which come after this opera are the abduction from the Seraglio and the magic flute. How does the use of dialogue here compare or differ? So typically, opera, going way back into the beginning of opera in the early 17th century, there was what we call recitative. And recitative is dialogue with a lot of content in it that is sung. And it usually moves the story forward, whereas arias are set pieces that delve into a particular emotional subject for the character. This piece, the Lama Anonyme, does not have recitative. Rather, it has actual spoken dialogue like magic flute and abduction. It's almost a play with music and dance. And one of the reasons it has so much dialogue is it's actually based on a French play of the same title by Madame Stéphanie Félicité de Jean-Lys. So not only is the opera by a black or mixed race composer, but the text for most of the opera is by a woman. So there is all this dialogue within the work. And then the musical numbers become these set pieces that are very distinct from the story. They end up revealing quite a lot about the emotional life of the characters in a really interesting way. So it's from the music that you feel the emotion of these characters. Right. Using Mozart as an example, we think that the recitativo progresses the plot and the arias are a moment to delve into the emotional complexity, that moment in the character's life, but there's not often plot momentum that reveals itself in the music. And that's a similar situation here. There is definitely plot forward motion revealed in dialogue. I do have one recitativo accompagnato in the beginning of the second act. The difference there is that you have orchestral accompaniment and it is structured as opposed to 
more free flow with either harpsichord, pianoforte, recitativo secco, which is dry recitativo, which this opera does not have, and then, of course, spoken dialogue. There is a tiny bit of forward plot motion in that, for the most part, yes, the real meat of the opera, meaning the emotional complexity of the characters, are revealed through this amazing music. I should note, because there's so much dialogue, in fact, for a 100-minute opera, includes about 27 minutes of French dialogue, which is, by the way, absolutely beautifully written and spoken, because you guys do such a wonderful job speaking it, and I think Natalie Collat's coaching helped a lot, I'm sure. For somebody like me who enjoys listening to spoken French, it's a real delight. But I realize that not everybody's going to want to hear 27 minutes of French dialogue every time they want to hear the music. So what we've done with this is we've laid the opera out over three CDs. The first two contain the complete first and second acts with all the wonderful dialogue. But the third CD is just the music without the dialogue, except for two bits of dialogue that are actually over music. Uh, We kept those in, of course. And this was partly inspired by WFMT and the WFMT radio network had a preview presentation of this recording on November 5th of 2022, where they said, we're not going to do all that dialogue, we just want the music. And that gave me the idea of doing that as a third CD, as a bonus. We're not charging for that third CD, by the way. I remember when we started how difficult everyone was finding the dialogue, that it was so much text. And I think I can reveal that it was somewhat stressful for everyone to put that together. But by the end, I tell you, it became one of my favorite things about the piece. I loved hearing you speak it. The last day of recording, when the dialogue was finished, I realized what a treasure it is, actually, to have that aspect of the piece be on the disc. So I'm really happy that it made the cut. And in fact, on the first two CDs, the complete acts one and two, we actually track the dialogue and the musical numbers separately. So you can find whatever you want on those as well. Before we continue with the music, though, I think it's worth quoting one more time from the notes by Mark Clegg because he talks about how Saint-Georges, who's today best known for his instrumental compositions, especially all those wonderful violin concertos, he writes, it's vital to recognize Boulogne's operas for at least two reasons. One is that the composer's vocal writing may present his most vibrant artistic accomplishments. In fact, he quotes you, Craig, as saying, quote, I find his writing for voices and dancers to be more emotionally compelling and lyrical than his instrumental concert music. Yeah, I do. Even the instrumental music within this piece, I suspect Boulogne was a stage animal. I can imagine him being very good on stage himself. And as someone who is an athlete and a dancer and used to being watched and having this sense of presentation and very much inspired, like I am, by the human voice and dramatic situations. That probably sparked a certain part of his imagination that really bore a lot of fruit. And following that, Clegg comments that the other reason is that to know Boulogne's operatic music is to know the composer not only more fully, but arguably at his pinnacle. Yeah, which makes me sad that this is the only piece we have so far. I think there are isolated numbers from Ernestine and Mm -hmm. a couple of the other operas, but so far the full operas have not been found. As a transition from this discussion of dialogue, I thought it would be fun to actually play some of that, and there's a moment in the first act where the dialogue actually runs into the music. 
And this is the cur, the chorus, Chantons celebrons Notre Dame. And the Dame in this case is Leontine. This is basically the villagers singing Leontine's praises. So this involves everybody but Nicole on this track, because obviously she's not singing praises to herself. This is in the story because she is sponsoring the village wedding between Jeanette and Colin. Let's hear some of that dialogue, and then we'll run right into the chorus itself. What happens here is the orchestra plays really quiet, like it's far away, and Leontine says, what do I hear? (laughs) 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 So it's a beautiful way to transition right into the music. So we'll play some of the dialogue leading into this. At this point in the opera, this is one of the major plot points. The anonymous one has sent Leontine a letter saying, hey, there's this wedding coming up. And the letter came with a bouquet of flowers. And if you carry this bouquet with you to the wedding, I will not assume that you're that terribly fond of me, but at least I'll know that I am not odious to you. Basically, he's asking for a testimony of at least indifference from Leontine on whether he should continue to pursue her. And there's a lot of back and forth in the dialogue about this. We'll just play the end where Leontine decides that she will, in fact, carry the bouquet. And at that moment, like I said, they start to hear music. The translation of of what you'll hear them say in French over the music is, what do I hear? That's from Leontine. Then Dorothée says, without a doubt, it's another trick of your faithful anonymous one. And Valcour, of course, is the anonymous one, notes, he can no longer let a day go by without giving you some new celebration. And then we hear the orchestra get much louder and the horns pipe up especially, and then we're off to this celebratory chorus. So here is that portion of the opera Lamont Anonyme as performed by the cast of the Haymarket Opera Company with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, all directed by my guest on this podcast, along with Nicole Cabell, Craig Trumpeter. Oui, vous avez raison, madame. Il faut se rendre. Et pensez-vous, Valcourt? J'ai peine à vous comprendre. Vous disiez dans l'instant... Oui, mais en vérité, quand son bouquet par vous sera porté, pourra-t-il en tirer la moindre conséquence Sans doute. Et s'il conçoit de là quelque espérance, à tort, il sera flatté. Vous le croyez En vous, j'ai tant de confiance que votre avis toujours est sûr d'être écouté. Je cède donc, par complaisance. De mon bonheur, ah, je suis transporté. Contrange C'est sans doute encore un nouveau tour de votre anonyme fidèle. Il ne peut plus laisser passer un jour sans vous donner quelques fêtes nouvelles. Oh, <laughs> 
You just heard the Act One chorus from the opera La Mont Anonyme from the world premiere recording on CD records of this 1780 opera by Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. That was the forces of the Haymarket Opera Company conducted by Craig Trumpeter. And by the way, the way this was done in the production and on the recording was we didn't have a separate chorus. Basically, chorus consisted of everybody singing at once. And it makes a surprisingly full sound with with just five people. We had great singers. Yep. And I should note that in the middle section is where you got to hear the other pair of lovers, uh, Jeanette and Colin, as well. Now, one thing we talked about earlier is this being French opera, there is dance music. In fact, there is a lot of dance music. First of all, I'd love for you to talk about Saint-Georges' dance music in general and then also talk about how it had to be performed one way with actual dancers in the production and how the approach changed for the recording. There was quite a lot of dance music, and we had a wonderful small dance troupe directed by our stage director and choreographer, Sarah Edgar, who is really fantastic. First of all, she created these dances in period style, but also with these dances told stories of their own, which came from her imagination. There are these little tangential stories going on in the larger story, which was fun to experience. There's a lot of dance music. Oftentimes it's all in a row, so there's maybe five dances that... Right, then the main ballet has five dances. Yeah. In the production, it was a little bit nerve-wracking for me as conductor to get the exact tempo that the dancers wanted for each dance because there wasn't a transition period between them. They just lock in right away. And then in the recording, we could do things a little bit differently in terms of tempi and definitely dynamics. Again, in the stage production, we just had to make enough sound so that everybody could hear everything, especially the dancers who were making quite a lot of noise on their own, huffing and puffing, dancing around. So it could be more subtle, and also we had the luxury of making these transitions in an easier way. And it also allowed for a much more dynamic approach Yeah, the nice thing about recording these dance movements is, again, that we can do these subtle changes and also more dramatic changes in terms of dynamic and expression. As mentioned, the main ballet, there are actually other dances as well, but the main ballet is in five movements. And let's hear that fifth movement for an example of these dynamic contrasts that come out much more fully on the recording than you were able to do in performance.
You just heard a portion of the Act One Ballet, one of many dance pieces in the Opera La Mont Anonyme, as performed by the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, conducted by Craig Trumpeter on this Haymarket Opera Company world premiere recording on CD Records. Well, let's get back to the plot and the music, and I want to especially highlight this next piece. This must be from Old French. It's titled Canquet, which is a quintet. Of course, that sounds much more like the Latin for quintet than the French for quintet, which is cantet. But in any case, I think this is a particularly impressive example of ensemble writing, largely presaging what Mozart would do, of course, on a much grander scale in, say, Act Two of The Marriage of Figaro. Comes out at a moment, this is the anonymous one's first attempt to reveal himself, which doesn't quite work out. At least it gives him the idea that Leontine may be open to his advances in the future. After some dialogue where Dorothée and Valcour say to Leontine, hey, the, the anonymous one's probably around here somewhere listening in, so you should turn toward that tree and talk to him in case he's hiding there. While she's not looking, Valcour actually sneaks behind the tree and jumps out. And like I said, it doesn't work out quite that well and leads to this quintet where I think it's fair to say, even though there are five people involved, musically, it keeps following Leontine's emotions. Do do you have that sense as well, Nicole? Yes, Valcour plays a trick on her and she has a really strong reaction. And it's implied that because for a moment she thinks the anonymous one is Valcourt, which of course turns out to be Valcourt. She experiences this shock and it's not even so much that he has scared her, but that at this moment, this person that she might be able to turn her heart around for could actually be her best friend. That shakes her to the core. So she's having this reaction in this quintet that's not just the shock and alarm of being scared, but also wow, why do I feel this way with having thought for one second that this could have been Valcourt? Mm. Because as we find out later, she actually has feelings for Valcourt too. It all gets to be too much for her. So much of this quintet is her telling everybody to leave her alone and they're trying to help her and bring her smelling salts and trying to give her a little bit of air. And she just says, you know, I just need to be left alone to gather my thoughts which we find what her thoughts are in the beginning of Act 2. So this is, of course, ah. where we end in Act 1. And I would argue that this kind of ensemble writing really is the great operatic advance of the classical period, moving beyond the world of Baroque opera, so dominated by da capo arias and very few ensemble pieces. And again, one thinks of this advance coming with Mozart, and it's true even in his early operas, Mozart did start writing ensembles like this. The opera that he wrote around the age of 18, La Finta Giardiniera, actually opens with an ensemble. How would you say, Craig, Saint-Georges' ensemble writing compares? How does he advance the ball, as it were? This piece is really a blast. It's got so many charming parts of it. It's very funny, even though there's Leontine's angst. The end is like, I'm well, I'm well, I'm well. She's like, get out of here. It sounds a little bit vaudevillian to me. (laughs) I do think that Mozart was probably inspired by that. I mean, certainly this piece comes before abduction. It sounds like Mozart could have really taken a cue from this piece. And we should note, by the way, that Mozart and Saint-Georges were neighbors for about two and a half months when Mozart stayed in Paris. Mm -hmm. I mean, they literally were practically next door to each other. So they definitely knew each other, traveled, of course, in the same circles. This might be a good time to talk about the way this was engineered. As I mentioned before, we moved the orchestra out of the pit and up to the level of the singers. The singers were actually behind the orchestra, 
uh, with the mics actually overhead, and that allowed you as conductor to be able to see and work with everybody. While it is true, as you pointed out, Nicole, that there's a lot of standing in one place, we did try to at least approximate the positions on stage that people were in for most of the show, and sometimes even some of the blocking. And a dialogue leading into this number that we'll hear in a moment is a perfect example because, of course, we have a Valcour moving around a bit and coming from the back of the stage and then moving forward again with his surprise. Having heard the recording, of course, now, I'd love to have some of your thoughts on the engineering, which is by Sadie's resident engineer, Bill Malone, how he was able to capture all this and have those ensembles sound both full and yet have every voice be distinct where they needed to be, especially in a piece like this. I couldn't agree more. There's a lot of clarity and depth in the sound and these subtle changes of placement, and I think it comes through beautifully. Well, Nicole, as somebody who has made many recordings, both recital and opera, how do you feel you were captured here? I was really pleasantly surprised when I heard the recording because I was so tired a little in some ways, not so much vocally, just was a long week of the shows. And I thought, well, it's a great engineer that can put it all together and make me sound fresh. And of course, everybody else sounded fresh. The balance was fantastic. And the sound, it had the depth and the warmth, but also the clarity that I think that we might have gotten in the live shows, hopefully we did, but for sure the recordings, and that's necessary. It's this chiaroscuro balance, right? You have this beautiful round sound of performing in a hall with all the clarity of the microphone close by, and the balance was achieved. Mm. Especially in the cake, the, there's so much going on musically. The full orchestra is involved, and all the singers with different texts and, and different musical ideas, and I thought it was very successful. And it actually ends with the other bit of dialogue over music, where Valcour and Alphémont basically run off the stage announcing their plan to carry the plot further. And that was actually one of the trickiest things to balance, is how do you take that dialogue, which was actually recorded separately, and put mm. it over right. <laughs> the right. orchestra and do justice to both? And I think Bill did a yeah. great job balancing <laughs> that. Why don't we hear that then? So this is the concluding part of Act One, the Canquet or quintet involving all but one of the characters. It opens with Leontine, and this will come out of that dialogue with the surprise that does not do great things. I do have to mention one moment, though, in the dialogue, Nicole. One of the things I love about this is uh, not only is it beautifully written, but you guys clearly understood what you were saying, and there's a moment when you're being asked from afar, but to confront the anonymous one directly, and you say about your heart palpitating, you say, Le cœur me bat. People should listen for the way you say that because it is so moving, <laughs> it's so emotional. I really oh, love that part. Thank you. <laughs> so with that, let's hear the dialogue leading into and the concluding quintet of Act One of L'Amour Anonyme, world premiere recording of 1780 opera by Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Joseph Boulogne. Once again, we hear the forces of the Haymarket Opera Company, including soprano Nicole Cabell, and all under the direction of Craig Trumpeter. Le Carme Bas. Je voudrais vous connaître, et de ma curiosité... Oh, que vois-je Au ciel L'arbre remue Oui, l'anonyme enfin s'expose à votre vue. Pas le plus tendre amour, trop longtemps tout monté. <rire> C'est Valcourt Je renais Oh, le tour, en vérité, est excellent. La plaisante méprise, comme il avait l'air transporté 
Revenez de votre surprise. Riez-en donc. Quel trouble est dans mon cœur. M'avez-vous trouvé l'air bien amoureux, bien tendre Oh, cela ne peut se comprendre. L'anonyme n'eût pas témoigné plus d'ardeur. D'honneur, c'était la chose même. Vous m'avez fait une frayeur extrême. Elle pâlit. Au ciel, asseyez-vous. Colin, Jeannette, on fait mon, venez tous
You just heard the end of Act One of L'Amant Anonyme, opera in two acts by Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges, written in 1780 in its world premiere recording by the Haymarket Opera Company. And again, if you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll want to check it out. You can find it on the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or on Amazon.com or starting on its release date of February 10th. It'll be available on all the streaming sites, Amazon, Apple Music, Tidal, of course, Spotify, wherever you like to get your music, I hope you'll want to check this out. But now, let's move on to Act Two now, which really is Leontine's act. And it opens with the second of her solo numbers, which we talked a little bit about before, because this is the one accompanied recitative in the opera, and again, makes me think of things like Sevold Ballare, or even the recitative before Dove Sono in The Marriage of Figaro, again, written six years later. How does Boulogne's application of this form of the accompanied recitative compare to what Mozart would come to do with it? I think it's actually quite similar. You have sung line, and then you have a little musical interlude, and another sung line, and a musical interlude. I think about this as thinking music or pacing music, and it feels like it's happening in real time or rather spontaneously, which is interesting and it's very human to have a thought that then would lead to another thought and more is revealed without premeditation that form is quite familiar and yes i would agree that it feels very much like the recitative prior to dove sono here and this aria it's about her feelings for valcourt so she's been talking about the anonymous lover this whole time and now it's like oof after what happened in the quintet when she considers for a second that it could be Valcourt, uh-oh, maybe I'm having deeper feelings for Valcourt than I thought. It's not necessarily new thoughts for her, but it is revealing thoughts that she's diving deeper into. And I think that Ballon captures the music really beautifully for this, particularly in the recitativo accompagnato. And then it moves on to the aria portion, and for time consideration, that's what we'll mostly hear. The aria itself is Amour devient pour moi propice, love become more favorable to me, <laughs> or leave me alone is the next line, right? Uh, it's either one or the other. Yeah. Uh, either things need to start going better or please stop bothering me with this love. <laughs> and once again, we're in C minor, which is the key of the ariette in the first act. How does Boulogne use this to capture the character's anxiety? This is very similar to this ariette in the first act, where she's saying she's getting real, <laughs> if you will, mm-hmm. with love. The first time, of course, she's saying, no, I will not fall in love. And this time she's saying, look, (laughs) tell me what to do or just stop causing me such torment, right? There's a drama in this that harkens back to her life previously, um, her trauma, and also her strength, her forwardness with love, and her relationship with love. Uh, It's a very similar feeling between this one and the first Arietta, except, of course, this one's She's starting to warm up a little bit more. I thought it'd be interesting to play this back-to-back with the beginning of the next song piece, which is actually a duet with Ophémon, who comes along basically to say, hey, I've got some news about the anonymous one, and then says, ah, never mind, I'll tell you tomorrow, and really annoys the crap out of Leontine, I think it's fair to say. And there's this duet, a finisse de grâce, for heaven's sake, finish. One thing that I find interesting here is that Boulogne goes one key up in the circle of fifths to G minor, perhaps as a way of showing her increased agitation. Is that something you feel as well? That's interesting. I I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, but 
Yeah, this is one of those instances too where I feel the writing is very specific to Ballon, the way the vocal line is written. The tessitura, the words up so high. One might think, oh gosh, you know, does this composer understand voices as well as some of his contemporaries? And one must listen and think, if it's a little bit of trouble to sing this, if it sounds like there's a little bit more effort that's needed for this, I think it might be on purpose because mm -hmm. she is very impatient. She's angry, actually, at Raymond. She's anxious, as you said. So in a way, that challenge to the singer is potentially very much on purpose. And you hear that in the tessitura of my part. But I think his part too, Ophelman's part as well, but with different intention in his part. But there's uh, some subtext to the meaning of that crazy writing. <laughs> when this happens, the result is actually really interesting and cool because it does take an intensity and concentration and a little bit of good anxiety <laughs> pumped into the approach to this as a singer. Let's hear that then, and these are two different examples of upset, as it were, coming from Leontine. So we will hear from the end of the accompanied recitative leading into the aria Amor devient pour moi propice, uh, followed by the beginning of the duet A Finisse de Grasse, sung with Ophémon in that duet, both pieces from Act Two of L'Amant Anonyme of the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
You just heard bits of two numbers from Act Two of La Mont Anonyme, this world premiere recording of the opera by Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Joseph Boulogne, 1780 opera in its world premiere recording by the Haymarket Opera Company. In both of those, you heard Nicole Cabell uh, as Leontine. And in the second excerpt, we also heard David Govertson as Ophémont, all with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra conducted by Craig Trumpeter. To continue the plot just a little bit, that duet is followed by an absolutely hilarious chest-pounding baritone aria where Ophémont sings with great drama that the anonymous one is in such agony in his love for Leontine that he's ready to end it all. And this convinces Leontine to agree to meet with her potential would-be lover. Now, while waiting for him to appear, she sings the piece we heard a little bit of at the beginning of this podcast, Du Tendre Amour, Of Tender Love, which I like to call the Dove Sono of this opera, referencing the famous Countess Aria from The Marriage of Figaro, again, written six years later. Nicole, I know you've spoken about this aria before as the opera's great showpiece. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I find this aria, Du Tendre Amour, to be one of the most natural pieces to sing. It fits in a very comfortable part of the voice. There's almost a mezzo-soprano quality to it. The range is very middle voice and slightly unusual compared to the rest of her music in the opera. But the content of the aria, it's appealing because she's really starting to soften towards the idea of love and This is a joyful aria for her, and she goes from feeling curious and a little bit scared of this idea of love to embracing the possibility that this could be for her. It ends on a triumphant note as she's waiting to receive her anonymous lover. She's basically preparing herself. Her excitement is building, and I think the audience feels that, and they love the music as well. It's just a beautiful melody, as well as a great character reveal. In fact, that it's not only a showpiece that you could take and put it on a recital. Du Tendre Amour is one of those arias that you really can excerpt from this opera, and it can be a great standalone piece. It's a nice length, and it's beautifully composed, and it has wonderful shape. And people really respond to it taken out of context. But at the same time, you had pointed out beautifully how well it works in context as it shows the softening of her heart. Is there anything you might want to say more about the aria's musical characteristics? To me, I think one of its outstanding characteristics are those long ascending legato lines that you sing so beautifully. How are those to sing? Melismas in this aria that can be a challenge, but with proper motivation with the character. They're so beautiful. It's so beautifully written that as long as you've really embraced the music as a singer and have motivation as a character, these are some of the most beautiful, these melismas I'm talking about, some of the most beautiful moments of this aria. Something that sets this aria, again, aside from some of the other arias, not just from my character, but some of the other ones, where there's emotion poured into simply vowels and exclamation as opposed to just words. Craig, is there anything you want to say about this piece? I love this aria a lot. I suspect Mozart was inspired by this piece. The accompaniment in the violins sounds a lot to me like the trio in Così, Soave, Silvento. And then there are these beautiful, sustained, quiet wind chords that are just this little carpet for the melody. It's just magical. 
Well, the arias are basically in three sections. He calls it an ariette as well, even though it's the longest single number in the opera. But much like the one in the first act, it's in three parts, essentially an A section, a B section, and back to the A section. We'll hear the return of the A section to the end with that more assured or triumphant ending that you talked about, Nicole. So here is the concluding portion of Du tendre amour, of tender love, ariette from the opera Le Mont Anonyme, as sung by Nicole Cabell with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra, conducted by Craig Trumpeter. just heard a portion of the Ariette du Tendre Amour, the hit tune of La Mont Anonyme, this opera by Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Joseph Boulogne, written in 1780, and it's world premiere recording by the forces of the Haymarket Opera Company, specifically in that case, soprano Nicole Cabell as Leontine, and the Haymarket Opera Orchestra conducted by Craig Trumpeter. To finish up the story, eventually Valcour is able to reveal himself, after a lot of dialogue, as the anonymous one. And they sing a love duet, except maybe because this is a French opera, the love duet is actually a trio, because Valcour's confidant, Ophémont, is included in it, at least in the outer sections. There's actually a middle section that's just the two of them. And another piece that offers some masterful writing from Monsieur Boulogne. Uh, what would you each like to say about this trio? This trio is pretty complex in some ways. It, for one thing, it's this basically happy moment in the piece, but there's still a lot of angst for the characters because it's in a minor key. There's all these offbeat, breathless, accompanimental figures. 
And then Ophemon is there. He's like <laughs> the third wheel. Uh, so there's a very emotional aspect to it, but there's also a little bit of comedy in it. It's this interesting mix that I love. The accompaniment at the beginning, if you listen to it, it reminds me a lot of one of the three genies ensembles from Magic Flute. They have the same accompaniment. So again, Mozart probably just borrowed. Nicole, what would you say about it? Honestly, Craig said it the best, and I was going to say the same thing about the comedy. I think Guafemon is there in some ways to just provide the lightness to it and to just remind everybody that this whole thing has been orchestrated not just by Valcourt, but Valcourt and Ophémont and all the other characters in the opera seem to have something to do with this all happening, with them getting together ultimately. The same with the end of Act One and Leontine's very strong reaction to being surprised. There's a general idea of fragility to shock. Maybe it's just for the 18th century idea. But the fact that now it's, of course, been revealed that Valcourt is the lover and it can't just be a happy thing. They both have to go through the motions of feeling this, their world has been shaken and and it's quite a big deal. The shock and the awe, right? (laughs) This is expressed in the music. And then, of course, like you said, it ends on this triumphant note, but they have to go through this journey of dealing with their emotions first. And we have to remember, this has been going on for years. Right. He's been wooing her for years. And so this reveal comes about and it's, oh my God, can it be? And I think that's beautifully expressed in this music. Very well said. As I mentioned, the middle section of the piece, Alphimon drops out for a while and leaves the two lovers. And then he comes back and we go back into that wonderful minor key. I wanted to pick this up actually at that middle section because the part where I'm going to start which is about halfway into the piece, really, to me, sounds like something out of the magic flute, as Craig was just saying. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you didn't know it was from a different piece, you could easily think you were hearing a French production of Mozart's last opera with Pamina and Tamino singing in French instead of Leontina and Valcourt. But again, remember, Die Zauberflöte came 11 years later. So here's that excerpt from the trio toward the end of L'Amant Anonyme by Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Thank you. 
We just heard the second half of the trio, A Quel Trouble Magite, from Act Two of La Mont Anonyme, 1780 opera by Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Joseph Boulogne, in its world premiere recording by the Haymarket Opera Company. And we heard as Leontine, Nicole Cabell, as Valcourt, the tenor role, Jeffrey Agpalo, and as Ophémont, the baritone role, David Govertson. If you enjoyed that and all the excerpts we've been playing so far, and I sure hope you have, I hope you'll want to check this full album out for yourself. Again, it's laid out both with all the French dialogue and separately. You can hear just straight through the music, either way you like, and it'll be available in streaming services on its release date, February 10. And that's when pre-orders will ship. So you can go ahead now and order it off Amazon.com or the CD website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E-Records.org, CDRecords.org, or wherever you like to get your music. Of course, that's not the end of the opera. There are many pieces that follow, and it's, once again, mostly dances. <laughs> there are ballets. There's a march, which is yet another ballet. There's a coeur, which is actually a ballet. <laughs> Lots and lots of dance music, this being a French opera. There is the final quartet, and then he ends the opera with yet another dance, specifically a contradance, which in his notes to the recording, Mark Clegg argues is literally a revolutionary way to end the opera. And if you want to know why, you'll just have to read the program notes, uh, which incidentally you can find on the Sadie Records website on the page devoted to the album. If you're listening on streaming, you can still read the booklet and even download it through the Sadie website. And the notes are really worth reading. In fact, I'd like to mention the notes again in context, soliciting your final thoughts, both of you, on the opera as a whole and its importance in the classical period repertory as well as to modern-day audiences. Well, at Haymarket, we try to find these pieces that are outside the standard operatic and canon of repertoire that's relatively small. There's so many operas and other oratorios and pieces that just simply have left the repertoire for one reason or another. So we love to champion these pieces because we often find these wonderful gems like this piece. It's really important to offer audiences something different. These are rich pieces often, and it's a shame that our musical diet is limited so often. We're just so fortunate to be able to perform this piece and then to record it, make the world premiere recording of this really important piece by a, a composer who's suffered from neglect. Nicole, how do you feel about it? You always say it best, Craig. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm a black singer, and Joseph Ballon, to me, is an incredibly important figure that because he was also a black composer, I can't believe it's been this long, that it took this long for this recording to be made. But again, just from my personal experience, just such an incredible honor to be a part of this recording, given my background and given Joseph Ballon's history. It's just about time. And I'm honored and grateful to have been part of this production with Haymarket Opera and also part of this recording. It's an incredibly significant recording. As we know, Joseph Ballon is finally getting recognition on a scale that he deserves. It might have taken a couple hundred years. It's just long overdue. I can't express how excited I am for the world to hear this recording in a way that hopefully could be representative of what might have been presented at the time. That's such a good segue into what I wanted to mention, which is it's not a coincidence that we're releasing this on February 10th, because February is, of course, Black History Month. I gave 
some of his exploits at the beginning of this show, and you have to wonder, somebody who was a composer, conductor, violinist, who was renowned throughout Europe, clearly had a relationship with Haydn and Mozart. He actually went over to London, by the way. I didn't even get to that part of his history, which was, of course, Haydn's town at that point. And I mentioned John Adams calling him the most accomplished man in Europe, and then falls into near total obscurity until recently. Mark Clegg, in his notes, offers a theory about that, which is, and I didn't know this uh, until he pointed this out, France is the one country that abolished slavery and then brought it back. It was abolished at the Revolution. But then, as emperor, Napoleon reestablished slavery, and it wasn't finally reabolished until 1848. And there was a need at that point to basically dehumanize blacks and erase famous blacks from French history. That's exactly what happened to Saint-Georges. All of a sudden, there was a great interest in not promoting his legacy. And it's taken until recently for scholars to say, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) There's a major figure here, arguably the most important composer of the French classical period, who is finally getting his due now. I think what CD Records has done is incredibly significant for the legacy of Boulogne in that we have made together the reference recording of this piece. And you can't know, unless you're a musician, how important that is to have. Young people or other companies that want to do this piece now have a place to go and say, oh, yeah, this is how this piece goes. Otherwise, part of the reason that this piece has languished for so long is just a practical one. There hasn't been this resource from a good score to a reference recording. So this is going to be a huge boost for his legacy. Oh, in fact, Haymarket General Director Chase Hopkins, when he first approached me about this project, that was very much his goal. He said, we want to make the recording that every opera company going forward that puts on this opera, and I think once people hear it, it's going to be played everywhere, that we want our recording to be their reference point for their productions. Mm. Anything you want to say about that aspect of it, Nicole? I know as a singer in researching pieces that I want to learn, the first thing I usually do is go find a recording. You've hopefully opened up this music, this opera, to a whole group of people, not just several generations, that find their research this way through recordings. And again, period instruments. This is extremely important because I think it's a window into how this might have originally been produced. And to have your gorgeous voice on the recording (laughs) is, you know, huge. Yeah, no, it really is. When you hear the recording, especially Act Two, it really is Leontine's opera, even though the title character is the tenor Valcour, but it's really her opera. And musically, Saint-Georges is so often tracking her emotions throughout the opera, even in the ensembles. In any case, I think that concludes our discussion of this world premiere recording. I did want to ask both of you, going forward, uh, what are your highlights for the 2022-23 concert and opera season? Nicole, anything you want to mention? (laughs) Well, Mozart, Mozart, and Mozart. I can't reveal what hasn't been announced yet. When I just fresh off the heels of singing Contessa, Nonote di Figaro, and I have another Fiorigi and Così Fan Tutte coming up, and I have my first Donna Anna and Don Giovanni in the future, and lots and lots of symphonic engagements. So I'm happy to say Mozart is in my future in a big way. (laughs) Wonderful. And Craig? Haymarket has a really 
wonderful season planned. We are starting off in March with a concert of a piece that, to my knowledge, has never been done in Chicago. It's Alessandro Scarlatti's La Giudita, a wonderful oratorio. And then in June, we present another Chicago premiere, uh, Johann Adolf Hasse's Mark Antonio e Cleopatra, which will star Justin Kim and Lauren Decker. Justin Kim will sing Cleopatra, as Farinelli would have done, and Lauren Decker will sing Marc Antonio as Tramontini would have done, the famous contralto. And then in the fall, we are presenting another Chicago premiere, uh, Francesca Caccini's La Liberazione di Ruggero dall'Isola d'Alcina, which is the earliest opera that I know of written by a female composer, Francesca Caccini. Wow. <laughs> Impressive. So, busy season. <laughs> Good for Haymarket. Well, I'm so proud to be associated with the company with this recording. We always end these podcasts with a question about what makes Chicago special as a musical city. And in this case, I think I'd like to focus on the subject that you just raised here. What makes Chicago special in terms of a city for period instrument performance and bringing lesser known operas to light? Well, Chicago has a long history of period performance going way back to the days of the musicologist Howard Mayer Brown and Mary Springfells with the Newberry Consort. Haymarket is one of the only early opera companies in the world that is doing this sort of repertoire. And so Chicago makes a wonderful home for us because it's such an opera town that there are people who are hungry for opera. So we get to do these off-the-beaten-path pieces and have a dedicated and devoted audience. And Nicole, as someone whose career really started here with the Ryan Opera Center, what makes Chicago special for you? It's an incredibly gorgeous city with some of the most enthusiastic and dedicated audience members. I miss it. I live in Rochester now because I'm teaching at Eastman, but Chicago will always be in my heart as a city that supplies an audience that is automatically and built in as supportive of young singers as well as progressive works. I have to say because the Chicago Lyric has such a enthusiastic and loyal audience base, companies like Haymarket Opera can exist because you're providing something different. We already have a traditional opera company, so you can provide something that is unique and different, and you can really satisfy the palate of anybody who's looking for various operatic experiences. And really, Chicago is just one of the great cities that can supply that. There's not many of those in the United States. Oh, that's wonderful. My guests on this Classical Chicago podcast have been soprano Nicole Cabell, who sings the lead role, Leontine, on Sadie's new recording, world premiere recording of Le Mans Anonyme, and Craig Trumpeter, the conductor and artistic director of the Haymarket Opera Company, who, of course, musically directs this recording. So thank you to you both, and thank you, everyone, for listening.